racism and hatred has no place in our province. And as Premier, I have absolutely zero, and I repeat, zero tolerance for anyone targeting the black community or any minority group. I just won't stand for it, and we won't stand for it as a province. There's the Premier adding his voice to the um, pretty explosive race issues dominating U.S. news coverage. And um, it all sounds great to say racism has no place here, but it's here. It's been here for a long time. And uh, it's not nearly as bad as what we see in the United States. It just doesn't mean that we don't have problems. And we've seen this kind of explosive anger uh, stateside for decades. And yet, you know, the results remain the same. So you ask yourself, is this the latest flashpoint? You know, is it just a, a flash or is this a real actual turning point? Henry Burris is a three-time Grey Cup champion with the Ottawa Red Blacks and the Calgary Stampeders, just not the Ticats. He's also a broadcaster and motivational speaker, so it's good to have you, Henry. I had to qualify that you didn't actually win for Steel Town because that's my team, but uh, we will forgive you for that. <laughs> it's all right. We were close. We were close. We lost the 2013 Grey Cup, but you know, I still love Hamilton so much, and it still has a place in my heart. <laughs> always, always. I want to. I want to talk about this. You know wh what we're confronting right now, and I, and it's easy to be in the armchair. You know, it's easy to give opinions, but you know, who am I to give an opinion on this? I'm a white woman, and, and you were pretty straightforward on Twitter when you said, you know, if you want to learn, and you gave a number of examples. What do we who who you know sit in the gallery chatting about this? What do you want us to learn? Well, I mean, the number one thing is we always talk about learn your history. And, you know, before you weigh, on, weigh in on something, always educate yourself on it. Because when you're weighing in on some situations, especially one that's as deep as this without facts, it really makes your argument shallow. And I want to make sure that Canadians actually know what's going on because it's deeper than just police brutality. There's so many more layers that go to this. It goes back hundreds of years. And, and the reason why I provided those links is, to give people just some type of reading to go so they can have an acknowledgement or an understanding of how long this has been going on and just the type of narrative that's been put out there by these different laws that have been passed, for example, like the Jim Crow laws or the type of speeches or the type of narrative that was created back in the 16 and 1700s by people who brought us to this land. And the fact is they you know, created something where the Caucasians are over the blacks. And so they made us sound inferior to the point where even if you try to create success communities, like what happened in the Tulsa Wall Street bomb. And because of course I was, I grew up just outside of Tulsa. So, I mean, just allowing people just to read something, just to gain some knowledge and some education as to how far back this has went on, but to also understand just, just how intense this truly is. And why is this still going on over 400 years? Right, because if you don't learn from your history, you're doomed to repeat it. And we keep seeing these cycles of violence that flare up, um, you know, the 60s and the 70s, uh, the civil um, issues flare up. Do you look at this moment, um, Henry, as a flashpoint or a turning point? Because we've seen this before. We saw it with Rodney King and O.J. Simpson back in those days. But nothing changes. So is this the flashpoint or we are finally at a turning point? I see a little bit of both because I knew at some point it was going to take something, a spark, a flashpoint, like you mentioned, to truly ignite a civil war in the U.S. Because you had the perfect ingredients for what's happening in the streets right now to occur. I mean, you almost have 45 million people that are unemployed. 
people are frustrated. Black people are dying from COVID. I mean, we only represent 13% of the population in the U.S., but then there's overwhelming percentage of, of African-American blacks that are dying from this disease, this pandemic. But then when you look at the essential workers, a vast majority of your essential workers are minorities, and the black mm -hmm. population is involved in that. But then also hindsight, we're ones who receive probably the less amount of resources towards helping us recover and economically and health-wise to get back on our feet. So the narrative still is out there, the fact that we still invest into the community, but nobody's listening to our cries. Nobody's listening to our pleas. And the fact that people are dying from a disease, and now the people that we pay with our tax dollars to protect us are still killing us. So why do my kids have to wake up every day seeing the same narrative over and over and over again and wonder why do people not value us? Look at all that we do. They love our music. They love us playing sports. They love everything we do in the communities. But when it comes to actually us as people, why are we not being valued? And even our kids are asking us those questions these days. You know, the prime minister spoke this morning, you know, uh, you know wanting to express uh, his support for the black community. You know, I've got your back. We're in this. We're learning. And I want to hear from you. But just know that we're with you. And it all sounds very good. But then I started to think about, OK, how does this government have anyone's back? We don't have investment in the communities. We're still waiting for subsidized housing. We've got gang issues in Toronto that no government will, you know, commit to, to stopping, uh, which doesn't stop the, the cycle of violence that brings young black men into it because they put these token type of gun rules in and gun laws in, but they don't go after the real problems. And, and a big part of that is investing in communities, but the other part is stopping the cycle of gang violence and the smuggled guns. And so it sounds great when the government say, we hear you, we're listening. And you say what to that? I mean, it's the same thing over and over again. And one thing I will say about this pandemic is truly exposed the true leadership that we have and has shown it for face value, what we have in both countries. And again, you know, I mean, we've heard people talking about how the government is structured to keep the hierarchy still in the hierarchy and the low end population or the lower class and the lower class. Now we know based on economic standards and the way it's created that there will always be an upper and a lower class, but why can't the people who invest in to make help these companies make the millions of dollars that they make? How come they can't receive their fair share of their value that they put into it? But when you look at the fact of the socioeconomic of socioeconomics that are taking place, I don't see any difference between Canada and the U.S. Because for myself, when I drive into a city and somebody says, "Go visit the hood," we already know who lives in the hood. We already know what takes place in the hood, and it's usually not good. And and it's unfortunate that. Black people and a lot of minorities are all attached to that ideology. And it's sad. And the only way that people can have a chance to get themselves out of it is if they do get help. So before prime minister says, I feel for you, well, why don't you show about action? Because that speaks louder than words. And when you see people only receiving a $2,000 check over the next couple of months, but then you see companies that mismanage their money, but need to bail out and receive hundreds of millions of dollars to bail them out. What's the message that you're really sending when that's happening? You're a successful black man. You've had a successful sporting career. You're out there doing motivational speaking, broadcasting. I mean, you know, people would look at you and say, look, you've got it all. But do you still look over your shoulder? Is there something that is there a disconnect with with, uh, you know, within the white community or other minority uh, other communities that would say, well, how could he have it rough? I mean, if you can take us through some of the experiences you might still have. I've had experiences in Canada. I, I've been told by the Border Patrol flying back with my family from a vacation that we took. And we were told we're here by privilege, not by right. And we've been told that. And it's almost as if they want to make you still feel like you're enslaved, like you're just a piece of property 
we've been pulled over because we drive a, a nice pickup truck or something like that. And, and without any reason, reason or doubt, I mean, or, or worry of what we're doing, we're not speeding. We have our, no phones or to our ears or we're not doing anything wrong, but we're just getting pulled over to get pulled over. All these things have happened. <laughs> you know, when you drive in the wrong neighborhood, people look at you wrong. I've had, you know, old ladies who see me walking, coming their way to clench their purse. But then when they see a 10 reverse, the great cup champion quarterback, they're like, Oh, we love you. Thank you for what you did. And the thing is, the what if I wasn't that great cup champion quarterback? Is it because of the color of my skin I'm being looked at and viewed that way? Trust me, as a kid growing up, being a black kid trying to play quarterback, people said, well, are you smart enough? You're not fast enough. That's because people know black people stereotypically to be fast and very athletic. But I wasn't the most athletic, but I was smart, and I believed in my smart. And I love the, the, the feeling of being a leader and, and having what they called so-called pressure on my shoulder. But the thing is, I was born to do what I do, and I had a passion to do what I'm actually doing in life. And I overcame a lot of obstacles, and I kept my focus on what I needed to achieve. And the one thing I've always wanted to tell a lot of the minorities out there that when you do, when you are face to face with the people that are trying to put you down, don't let the emotions get the best of you. Because in the world of sports, we always say that if you lose your emotions, you're going to lose in the game, and you're also going to lose in the game of life. So don't let emotions get you. Educate yourself. Find a way to overcome the demons of the people that are out there trying to steer you off your path, calling you the N-word and calling you different names to take your mind off the focus that you have because they're doing it for a reason. Whenever I've gone into these communities where gang violence, you know, it used to be the Jane and Finch area. There used to be certain pockets of Toronto. But anytime I ever went into those um, communities and would talk to the younger kids, 12, 13, you know, their one thing, the, the overriding theme of those conversations was, look, I either join a gang or I've got to get out and I've got a very short window of escaping this life. And I don't know if that's changed. I mean, that was a constant part of the conversation is that they either got out of that area or they had no choice but to be recruited into, to, into a gang. How do you stop that? I mean, there's no, um, to me, that's community, um, you know, putting money into these communities, but it has to be more than that. Well, it starts at home. And when, you, you live in a family structure that only knows one style of life. They only know one way of life. And that's how everybody, generation to generation, that's the style of life that they live and have enjoyed. Whether it's living off of, of government donations, government mm -hmm. givebacks, not really having a sense of pride or, or excitement or, or really, can I say, just a sense of excitement of achievement. If they don't see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel that they've experienced, what are they truly dreaming about? To me, every kid deserves to have something to dream about. And when your family can't give you, I guess, that, that plane or that plateau or something to be able to dream about or that vision to be able to see within your future, it's hard to envision anything. The gang is, because I grew up in a neighborhood, not in my neighborhood, but I had so many family members that were in gang. And really a gang for them was a structure, a place for them to feel like they were actually a part of something, somebody who cared about their well-being. Because the first thing to join a gang, they give you money. And they say, if you do this, this is what we will give you. They don't hear that from anybody outside of the hood. And so for them, it starts at home first, but it also starts with educating our families so the families can educate our kids. So therefore, in the future, they might give kids that vision that they can see something that they can possibly reach out and touch and actually know that it's possible that they might be able to make this dream come true. And, and fortunately enough for me, being able to get a scholarship through playing sports, that was my vision because there were so many much bigger things that I had in my mind besides just playing sports. It was also about becoming a broadcaster, getting into politics, doing different things. 
But for me, sports was going to help deliver that to me and also take the financial burden off my family. But kids, for black kids who don't play sports, mm-hmm. what is their calling? What do they have a chance to do if their family can't afford anything or has never seen the light of day to be able to afford anything to be able to help themselves and also their family's members to be able to see beyond what they see within those four walls that they live in? And you talk about family, but a part of that family has to be the structure, mom and a dad. And a lot of times in these family structures, there's a father missing. So how do those kids then get the nurturement? I mean, moms are great, but they can't do it all. And fathers, you know, I believe that you have to have uh, the balance of that family. Well, you need leaders within your community. You need leaders within the structures that you live in, even if it's Section 8 housing to whatever type of type of living you, you know, the standards that you live in or whatever type of environment. But you need some type of leadership, somebody who can step forward to a child and say, go do this, don't do that. Make sure you go here because this resource has been set up for you. But how many resources are actually set up in the neighborhoods that are of positive light? Mm -hmm. And if so, they're littered by the fact that there are, you know, like you mentioned, murders and different things happen. So families are afraid of their kids to be out at a certain time. Uh, liquor stores, different things that aren't about positiveness for kids to be able to reach these goals. Where are the resources for being educated? Tutoring programs. Where are these different things to help acknowledge as far as what the problem is and how we can solve it? There really isn't enough of that. And honestly, when you're born in a culture of doom and gloom, it's what you start to believe. And unfortunately, like you mentioned, without those father figures that are there at home, it's truly tough to have a single parent because that parent's always at work and you're forced to be a child that has to grow up way before your necessary means and try to live life and discover it on your own. And we both know as kids that are in our teenage years, we wouldn't be where we were today if we didn't have somebody to point us in that right direction. Yeah, hundred percent. Just before I let you go, Henry, when you see the images of of what the violence that is unfolding across your country, um, you know, your reaction to it, we've had a number, we've seen a number of members of the black community come out and say, stop doing this. This is not what we do. And, and there are a lot of people that are jumping into this, taking advantage of this. I mean, it, it has to break your heart to see such violence um, interrupting what is the actual message. And, and it hurts every time. And I'm tired of seeing it. Uh, the fact that my kids still have to see this and witness this, you know, really, it's really frustrating. Uh, because a lot of people are asking the same question. If the shoe was on the other foot, what would have happened? If there were four black cops that had, and one had their knee in the back of a white man's neck, would those four cops not all be convicted of murder by now? I think we know the answer to that. And, I, and that's what everybody's asking themselves. They're like, if people on the other side can ask themselves this question. And frankly, Alex, there are a lot of people who really don't care. They're loving what they're seeing right now. And those are the people that we're all battling against right now. Mm-hmm. The fact is, right now, thousands of people have been arrested for protesting their, using their First Amendment right before three people have been convicted. And really, that's what's truly inflamed this, as well as we know somebody in Washington that's doing his part as well. But the fact is, they're only inciting things that have happened throughout the years and in the past. Because I know Michael Vick, who did one thing wrong, yes, with the dogs, he did a bad thing. But him himself, he spent more time in jail than the last 436 murders of black men by cops in the time that they spent combined. Michael Vick, one man, spent more time locked up than those guys did for 436 murders of black men. So that shows you just how bad the system is, and that's only just one layer of the many different layers, and that's the reason why people are upset, and really, they have a right to be, because how much more can people take? They're out of jobs, they're not making any money, 
and you're steadily killing their people. The yeah. question we always keep asking is, what if the shoe was on the other foot? How would you feel then? Well, I hope this is the turning point, not the flashpoint, because I think this pandemic with all the you know, issues of economic despair that are going to follow are just going to exacerbate it on both sides. And, uh, and then we get, we get no solutions. But Henry, I, uh, I thank you so much for, for joining us. I, I really appreciate your perspective. And just a quick uh, final word uh, is the fact that I love the fact that so many different races and, and, and people are coming together to fight this fight. And, and again, I'm not a person who glorifies fighting. I wish this could be done in a peaceful manner. But to see so many people coming together, this is something you never saw in the past. So if, it's, if there's a silver lining of hope, that definitely gives me one.